Welcome to another edition of the Insurance Requirements Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Carell. Did you know that cyber risk is currently the top worry of business owners? However, one in three employees believe that their firm's cybersecurity is lacking. Uh-oh. Our guest today is here to help. He's Dan Burke, the National Cyber Practice Leader at Woodruff Sawyer, a full-service insurance brokerage firm in the Bay Area. In today's episode, we discuss cyber liability risks that tech startups face, things like what is cyber liability and why might a founder purchase it, getting serious about risk management, and how Dan negotiates on behalf of startups for the best coverage in the marketplace. We then dive into cyber events in the news, especially those related to the solar runs breach and other ransomware events. If our conversation has you worried that your current cyber policy doesn't cut it, you might want to give Dan a call. Last but not least, Dan shares three tips that founders can implement today to make their businesses more attractive to insurance companies. And now, on to the show. Dan Burke, thanks for joining us on uh, Insurance Requirements Podcast. Absolutely, happy to be here. Dan, you're the National Cyber Practice Leader at Woodruff Sawyer, a brokerage in the cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. Wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience and give us a day-in-the-life perspective of your day-to-day. Yeah, Dan Burke, I, I run the cyber liability practice for Woodruff Sawyer, which is a full-service insurance brokerage and consulting firm based in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Being based in the Bay Area, I think we have a particular expertise in specialty insurance lines of business. Cyber liability being one of them, management liability, directors and officers insurance, another, but really run the full gamut of management liability, cyber, property and casualty, employee benefits, you name it, we can, we can handle the insurance aspects of what is largely uh, a technology-focused group, particularly from a, a cyber insurance perspective. So our clients range from small biotech startups all the way to, you know, the Fortune 100 type of, of customer that is either you know, novice sort of insurance buyers all the way through very sophisticated, high-limit programs with complex risk issues that that need to be dealt with through an insurance mechanism. You touched on the the fact that in your line of work, you work with companies of all sizes. Our audience on the show is small and mid-sized technology startups. I wanted to ask you in your experience, what are some of the, the unique situations the startup community faces that maybe some other types of industries don't? I think one of the things that I see with startups quite often is that Insurance buying for them is not actually something that they've put a lot of thought in and process around. It's usually, hey, I've got some investors that want to make sure that we've got DNO insurance. And so I need to look up what DNO insurance means. And while I'm here, why don't I buy everything that you recommend that I buy? And so I, I think that's a particularly acute issue for startups where they just don't know what they don't know yet. And so insurance to them is this obligatory thing that somebody is making them buy, whether that's an investor or a contract um, that they're signing that requires them to have this insurance. But check the box things a lot of time. And I think at some point in their evolution of a company from scrapping it together, startup mode into 
we've got some customers and we know we're doing what we know what we're doing and, and we, we've got people that believe in where we're headed, they start to realize, wow, there's a lot that could go wrong here. And, and so as they make that shift, I think is often when I see buyers at, at these companies, whether that's a CEO, founder, or a general counsel, CFO, or just somebody who's thinking about risk at the, at the company, that's when they start to really look at insurance as a tool that can be super useful for them in accelerating the, the growth of their business. And so when they get to that phase is actually when I get very excited to, to start uh, having conversations with them around what are the risks that you're facing? Which are, what are the key risks? And, and what are the most important things we want to focus on now that go beyond checking the box? It's really identifying risk for them and, and helping them understand you know, what their mitigation tools are to protect themselves from those risks. And, and then with what's left, how do we ensure that? What are some of those risks that are generally the, the ones that, that grab their attention uh, when they're making that transition from the obligatory insurance buyer to the active participant in risk management? When I'm usually involved, we're talking about cyber risk and, and I lump professional liability, errors and emissions risk in with cyber. When you think about errors and emissions, it's mostly for professional services firms, whether that's a software developer who's, who's creating a, a SaaS solution, a platform, whatever it may be, but they end up with these contracts that say, you've got to carry professional liability. And they don't really think through what that means for them. And the, the, the way that I can most simply explain it is by providing a service or a product to somebody, whether that's technology enabled or, or actual technology itself, you're putting yourselves out there. You're claiming an expertise and setting yourselves up to say that we know what we're doing and here's a service. And frankly, if your, your contracts will say that if that service fails, you've got some remedies that you need to do to make that your customer whole. All of that will be laid out in the contract. And I think that's the biggest one that the companies, when they start grasping the concept of there's some real things that could go wrong here, that's the one that opens their eyes a little bit to like, oh, okay. So, so I understand that this is a risk now where we are doing, we're providing a service or a product. It is, it carries with it some inherent risk that things might go wrong or the product might not work as intended. And so how do we protect ourselves if that happens? And that's usually the question that we'll get. To me, that the errors in the professional liability aspect, errors and emissions is is the the one that that always strikes a chord with with a lot of clients. And I, I think the the advice on that is your contracts are always your first line of defense. And so your ability to mitigate or limit your risk in your contracts is going to be massive. But where your contracts, when you have to extend yourself in a contract further than what you may be willing to do, that's where you can craft an insurance policy to, to support you and, and allow you to extend a little further, which ultimately leads over time will lead to the growth of the business. Yeah. And so you hit on some risks that are unique and inherent to a technology software company. Would you be able to expand on some of those key components of the, the technology errors and emissions and how it blends together and works with the cyber? What are some of those key differences that, that a founder should be aware of? Fantastic question and, and relevant. I don't know when you're going to post this, but as of the day that we're recording this, we're just finding out about all of these cyber intrusions, allegedly from Russia, 
at the U.S. government level caused by a you know, third-party security monitoring company. And so they had a software update that was compromised uh, by these attackers that led them to whenever their clients downloaded the update and the attackers now had access. And so to me, that is the perfect highlight for what is a, a technology security software services company. It's their cyber risk. So, so they've had this cyber issue where their you know, process was compromised. There's some intrusions into their network that allowed an attacker to impact the product that is going out. And their customers are, are suffering all of this loss potentially. And, and it's yet to be determined what that loss actually is, but uh, suffice it to say, there's been a lot of intrusions at, at customers of this specific company. And so the customers have that the true cyber risk that you would think of when you think of somebody hacking into them. They've had the intrusion. They've got a higher legal counsel. They've got to hire IT forensics to come in and figure out who was in, how long they were in, what happened, how they got in, et cetera, and spend all the money to do all that. If there's PII involved, they've got to notify the consumers whose personally identifiable information um, was, was compromised, et cetera. So they have all of these costs and expenses. And so when you think about a, a traditional cyber insurance policy for a non-technology company buyer, it is, it is the it's split between first party and third party. So first party being costs that the company incurs directly to respond to an event. Third party being any liability you will face arising out of that event. So consumer class action lawsuits, regulatory investigations, potentially fines and penalties, whatever it may be. That encompasses your cyber insurance policy for those non-service oriented companies. But when you're that service provider, in, in this case, uh, a company called SolarWinds, whose clients were the federal government and a lot of the Fortune 500, it was their software update that was compromised that went out and thus their product caused this issue at all of these other companies. And that's going to come back to them. When those companies get through figuring out what happened, who was in, what may have been taken, they're going to spend all the money to do that. And hopefully they have their own insurance policy to help. But ultimately they're going to come back to SolarWinds and say, hey, this was your fault and this was your issue. And that's going to be a professional liability claim, an errors and emissions claim, which is what we talked about previously. And so when they do come back, to me, it's just such a great example of the difference between tying in professional liability caused by a, a cyber intrusion at your event and how many companies, particularly when you're a service company, your cyber risk can often express itself in, in actually a, a professional liability claim. And so that's the, the dynamic that I think you can highlight the difference between traditional cyber insurance policies responding to a security event that a company may face versus your security event impacting the product that goes out to all of your customers. I think it highlights also the, the need for both parties in that that scenario to have insurance that, that covers each of them. The solar winds breach at least initially, they're thinking about 18,000 software updates were downloaded at this point before they were able to cut it off. So you're looking at 18,000 separate events. And let's say in the worst case scenario, you end up with 18,000, assuming they're, they're individual companies that were affected. I don't know, and I won't pretend to know what SolarWinds insurance program looks like. 
but I have to imagine that the the possibility or the probability that they have enough limit to cover all of those suits for every one of those people or companies that were affected, it might stretch them thin. And so taking that a step further, some people that I talk to, they're like, oh, well, our service provider handles that. They're the, they're the tech company and they have their own insurance. So we'll just rely on them if something were to happen. And I think as unlikely as these events may have been in the past, we're starting to see more and more of these. So it, 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 does that highlight the, like a, a good idea for, for a company to say, you know what, maybe I'm going to buy my own insurance to, to help protect my business and not rely on, on somebody else's program. It absolutely does. I, I think there's two issues that you just talked about that really stick out to me. One is this idea of ripple events, which is what essentially this is. There's one event that ripples out to 18,000 potential customers. And so then I have 18,000 potential cyber incidents to, to handle from an insurance perspective. So for the company, in this case, SolarWinds, who's responsible for those 18,000 issues, for them, you know, it's, it's, are you buying the right limit? And so how do you think about what is the right insurance limit to buy? And we could talk about that for two hours. It's a, it's a very complex issue. I think it's specific to every single company. It will, it will depend on your contracts. It will depend on what your own cyber risk is, the type of business you're in. There's so many different factors that go into it. There's a lot of data you can use to support a decision around what the right limit is to buy. One of the things that I've noticed over, over the years that I've been doing cyber insurance, almost 15 years now, is that companies don't think about their errors and emissions risk, their professional liability risk in, in the same way they might think about a, a true cyber risk. And so they might say, oh, well, our, our average contract is you know, under a million bucks. So I, I can probably buy a million dollars of insurance limit and be safe that when, when a customer comes back against us, we've got enough limit. Reality is when you've got 18,000 customers all coming back to you and you're only buying a million dollar limit, if, they, if all 18,000 want, want their own million, right? You're, now you're talking, I mean, I don't even, I can't do the math. <laughs> so there's no math on this podcast. Yes. So it's just one of those, one of those situations where the, the, the company who, who has that professional liability risk, they become an aggregator of risk. And I think that's a term that a lot of insurance carriers have in their lexicon, right? It is the aggregation risk. Right. And I don't think companies have really started thinking about themselves as the aggregator. And, and so that's one of the things I've been talking about a lot with clients is consider yourself an aggregator of all of your customers' risk. And, and if something horrible was to happen, like how does all of their risk aggregate at you? And, and what does that actually turn out to be from a, a monetary perspective? So I think that's, that's one issue. The other issue that jumped out at me from what you said is probably the biggest misconception that I hear about cyber insurance all the time. I, I outsourced that to somebody else. I outsourced that service to someone else. So the, in this case, the security monitoring, the cloud provider, payment processing, whatever you want to say the service is, I outsourced that to someone else. And so it's, if it goes wrong, it's their responsibility. I'm not going to have to, to worry about that. And that's such a common mistake, I think, I, I see founders and insurance buyers that clients make is that 
that, that misunderstanding that you can outsource the service, but you cannot outsource the risk. And that's just, that's just a fact to me. So if you're outsourcing the service to someone else, you still retain the risk. And I think laws around the world have actually gotten better about defining that for many companies, whether it's GDPR, whether it's the California Consumer Privacy Act, defining the difference between a data owner and a data processor. The reality is that the data owner is always going to be responsible for the data. So whoever loses the data, whoever causes the data to be corrupted, causes malware to be installed, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that you're the one that has to respond. And right. buying your own insurance policy will cover you for that. So regardless of who causes the event, the cyber insurance policy responds to the fact that an event happened that you need to respond to. And I, I think that's one of the biggest misnomers in the, the cyber insurance space is that you, know, you can outsource, thinking you outsource the service and the risk at the same time, the reality is you keep that risk, but you can buy an insurance policy that actually helps you even when someone else is at fault. Talking about not being able to outsource the risk, I, I refer people back to the those service contracts. Let's read through the contract and let's see who's responsible for what. And oftentimes you will we'll get down to the indemnification section or a section called limitation of liability. And it will clearly state that we as the service provider are not accepting liability for XYZ, which means that you on the other side, the, the other party to that contract, you still have that risk. And then it's like, oh, well, how many other service vendors do we use? And so what other risk have, have we not maybe accounted for? So yeah, that's a really good point about outsourcing the service, but, but retaining the risk. And I imagine that's probably one of those light bulb moments to where it's, okay, maybe we can use insurance to maybe not just check a box here, but really fortify our business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it opens uh, clients' eyes to the fact that they they have retained a lot of this risk. Many of them grasp it, but it really puts it in a more concrete way for them. And then it, it shifts the conversation to, all right, well, you know, can d- does our insurance policy respond how I think it might respond? Which is, it's just going to cover me no matter what. And, it's not a no matter what scenario, but it, it, it will cover you for anything you need to respond, any cyber incident you need to respond to, regardless of who's involved. Does the conversation then shift towards, okay, I have, I, I now know that I'm retaining this risk and it's on me. How do I maybe if I can prevent it from happening, how do I do that? Or more likely, how do I make it less of a bad thing if it happens? How can I increase tactics or put processes in place around providing that service or or product or what have you? What are some of those areas that you focus on around risk mitigation? Yeah, I think it depends on the the type of client that you're talking to. We talked a lot about professional liability already. So for them, it, you talk about contracts and the fact that if they're going to be that service provider, you want them to not accept any, any liability for data breaches or consequential damages. We want them to put a limitation of liability in there. You want to make sure that it applies to, to data breach scenarios and, and those types of issues. I think when you talk about non-service provider companies, retail, healthcare, financial institutions, manufacturing, others, really anyone who's, who's looking at it from their own security perspective. They, w- one of the questions we get a lot is, 
around this idea of the trade-off between spend on security, spend a dollar on security or spend a dollar on insurance. And where's my dollar best spent? And it's, it's a hard question to answer. And, and I, I often make a joke that if you're asking the insurance guy where you should spend your dollar on the sale, like we're in sales, like you're asking the wrong guy because I'm going <laughs> to tell you to put insurance. The reality is that I think the, the truth really is that you need a certain level of security. There's a bunch of baseline stuff and the basics that you need to have in place. And so if you don't have those in place yet, your dollar is better spent on doing those things. What are some of those things that, that you touch on, those kind of baseline um, processes? Yeah, I'll put it in a specific example for you. So in, in 2020 and sure in 2021 as well, ransomware is going to be such a massive thing for so many organizations. And ransomware is an attack where you know, a, an attacker gets access to your network. They either steal a bunch of data or they just block your access to your own network and say, until you pay me a ransom, a certain amount of Bitcoin, we're not going to allow you back in, or we're not going to give you your data back. You know, grew more than ever kind of in 2019. It exploded in 2020. And, and I doesn't show any signs of abating in 2021. When you think about ransomware, frequency of ransomware is way up in 2020. And the severity of ransomware losses is way up too. The demand, the ransom demands are getting higher. Those are almost always negotiated down, but there's still a significant amount of money. So those are getting higher. Attackers now stealing data. And so you've got data breach expenses that you're going to have to incur to, to respond to a data breach issue on top of potentially paying the ransom so that they don't sell that data and cause you even more problems. And then all the while, your, your network isn't up and running. So you've got business interruption losses that you're realizing at the same time. And insurance is covering all those things. And so insurance from an insurance perspective, that has really taken off and, and caused a lot of damage and losses for insurance carriers. They've all responded by asking these, these questions around ransomware now, specific to controls that you can put in place. And so to me, that's a really illuminating way to think about what are the basic controls we should sort of have in place. And so it, it, that to me, I, I've always, I'm a big fan of the insurance industry. I think insurance makes the world go around. It's, it's highlighting for me where, where underwriters are focused really highlights where, or where clients of ours should be focused. So founders starts where you should be focused from a security perspective. I think when you talk about the specific controls that are in place, you, you look to like where these attacks are arising from. The, the weakest point in any company's security apparatus is going to be their employees. Yep. And so are you doing employee training? That's like a, a baseline, right? You, you, if you're not doing that already, you're going to find it hard actually to find insurance, most likely. Are you doing some email filtering and, and email monitoring around phishing emails? Are you tagging emails that they're from external? Are you... You know, do you have your, your email client set up correctly, whether that's Office 365, whether that's G Suite or whatever Google's calling it now, all, all of those different platforms you have to do email, are they configured correctly such that you've got them protected in the right way? Those are the things underwriters are asking about. Um, and then they're going to backup procedures. For, for a long time, one of the best responses to a ransomware event would be to just restore from backup. And it would take you a couple of days, but you'd have these clean backups that are segregated from your network and you just come and you plug those in and you restore your systems. And you could actually just ignore the attackers. Like you didn't even have to really acknowledge them. And so attackers caught wind of this and they figured out what was going on. They said, all right, well, 
if you're just going to ignore us, we're going to steal your data first. And so, or, or actually the first they went and they, they looked for your backups. And so if your backups weren't segregated, they would actually encrypt your backups and then they would deploy the ransomware so that when you went to restore from backup, you actually didn't have them because they were already infected. And then they went a step further and they just started stealing your data first. And so then they'd say, if you ignore us, we'll just, we've got your data. We'll just send that out and, and put that out in the, the dark web. Right? So it caused all these employees, these companies to now go back and say, all right, let's really think about how we're dealing with backups. Are they segregated from the network? That's like number one, it, whether that is on, on tape, totally offline, in a separate facility, distinguishably separate. Is that cloud backups? And if it is cloud backups, do you require two-factor authentication in order to allow access to those? Two-factor, multi-factor authentication, one of the biggest security tools you can use to protect a lot of the attacks that are happening. And then have you practiced restoring for backup? I think that's the other area where underwriters are concerned about it because it does take a long time to, to go through that process. And all during that time, they're paying out business interruption loss. Your lost profits, your, your fixed expenses that you're occurring, even though your business isn't operating. And so from a, a testing perspective, they want to make sure that you've gone through and you understand how do I restore from backups? Have I gone through this process? Have I figured out the kinks and, and does, it, does it all work as, as expected? And can we do this quickly? And that's really what, what they're concerned about. So those, those to me are the basics, right? Around get your email configured correctly, do employee training, have good backup procedures and, and really MFA, multi-factor authentication can be a massive, while annoying to, to log into your, to your computer, it might take a little bit longer to get yourself into the different applications you need. Such a huge security benefit to doing that. As long as it takes to get in the additional time for multi-factor, it will take a lot longer if your entire system's encrypted and you can't get in regardless, right? So it's like, take the few extra seconds and let's, let's do the good thing here. I'm, I'm continually surprised by uh, a stat that a company called Coveware, who's a, a ransomware negotiation company, they put out fantastic statistics around their their experience dealing with ransomware on behalf of companies every quarter. And so every quarter they, they put out these updated statistics. And one of the things they track is average downtime. It's over two weeks. I mean, I don't think companies really expect that when you get the ransomware deployed and you've got 48 hours to respond and, and companies just don't fully grasp it. Like this is going to be a two week issue that you're dealing with. And you may get critical services up a lot quicker than that, but I mean, the average downtime is, is, I think it's like 15 or 16 days at this point. And that's a long time um, before you're fully up and running again. Comparatively, the, the extra two minutes to log in your computer doesn't seem like that big of a deal compared to the two weeks. Earlier in the conversation, you had touched on the being the aggregator of risk. Think of what that two weeks, depending on what your industry is, what's that two weeks going to be like for your clients? Are you a mission critical part of their business? And if they can't do business with you for two weeks, how does that affect their bottom line? Are you contractually liable to deliver things in those two weeks? And that could create some additional risks. So it sounds like there's a lot to unpack. It's not just the, the sticker shock of the ransom, 
it's everything else that goes into it, which leads me to my next question. So much of the, the news and the, the headlines are around XYZ company is hit with million dollar ransomware request. How does that factor into the overall expense of uh, just a average ransomware event? Where does the ransom play into the overall expense that you're seeing? It's, it's probably going to, so I'm going to couch my answer in the fact that it will be dependent on every specific scenario. I, I think the different strains of ransomware treat, treat the demands differently. They have higher or lower, they, they target different aspects of medium-sized business versus small. And so I think to me, there's a couple of things that I, I point to when you, when you think about companies going through a ransomware event. The first is that there are experts that do this, that respond to these things all the time, and they are well worth getting engaged. Cyber insurance can absolutely pay for them on your behalf, but it, there, there's the, the value they provide, I think, is, is unbelievable, given that you're in this time crunch, highly stressful situation of we got to get back up and running quickly. You hear the stories, I think, certainly in the industry like we are, you hear the stories of like, oh yeah, ransomware is going to come out on, on Friday night or right, right before the holiday. And I don't know that I appreciated it as much until I got into this, this cyber insurance broking world where the clients are actually calling us. And I kid you not, it's like every holiday without fail, I'm getting at least one or two phone calls saying, hey, this is, this is happening right now. Like, what do we do? And so the advice is always get somebody involved that can help you. From a, from a cost perspective to your actual question, one, the, the initial ransom demand that you get is always negotiable. So, so never just say like, all right, they want a million bucks. Like here's a million bucks. And I, I think most people are smart enough to understand that. But these, these, these attackers, criminals really that are, that are doing this are... They're, they're like full-on business enterprises now. They've got a customer service team that you're going to be dealing with. There are there are ca cases out there that are, are public where you know the attackers have checked in a week later, say, hey, we just want to make sure everything, you got everything back correctly. If there's any issues, like how did we do, right? Rate us on our service. There are these full-on organizations essentially that are doing this. So one, it, it's always negotiable. Two, I kind of mentioned it, it previously, but... To me, the attackers have gotten so good and, and adapted how they do these attacks, um, looking for backups first. Now they're just stealing data. Uh, Maze ransomware is, is, does this almost all the time. And I realized Maze, at the time of this recording, Maze is you know, officially retired, but I, I think there's a lot of people still using variants of their ransomware where they go in and they steal the data now. And so you've got this ransomware issue. Immediately, you've got legal involved. You've got IT forensics involved. You've got a ransom negotiator involved. At the same time, if you're a, a consumer-facing company, you've had your data taken. And so now you have reporting requirements under the law. So in the US, 50 different state laws dictating what companies have to do to notify consumers in those states that their information may have been lost. So you've got all those issues, you've got potential uh, liability issues, class actions, you've got investigations from regulators, state attorneys general, et cetera. And so all of those issues, those data breach issues, first party, third party, all coming back to you. And all the while your network is down. And so you're not making any money. And so any of your lost profits, any of your fixed expenses that you're just incurring rents, overhead, uh, payroll, et cetera, you're still incurring, but even though you're not making any money. And so when you consider those three different elements, the actual ransom, 
the response to that, the data breach and the response to that, and then the business interruption piece. It's no wonder that ransomware has become so costly for cyber insurance companies. I, you know, I, I think it actually goes to show the value of a cyber insurance policy. And that's another key common misconception I hear is like, oh, well, it was a ransom event. So we only have the cyber extortion limit. Well, the reality is like cyber extortion is one component of what is going to be a big problem for you. Data breach will come in and business interruption will come in. And you've got these now very well-designed policies that respond to a lot of the loss that's really occurring to companies. So for businesses who choose to transfer a lot of that risk by buying an insurance policy, you and your organization come in and provide your expertise. What are some of the the components to cyber policies these days that you're making sure to negotiate into the policy on your customer's behalf? Yeah, so I think we tend to start with the basics of cyber insurance. Do you have data breach response? Do you have the the key first party, third party coverages? So the key coverages being incident response costs, legal, IT forensics, consumer notification, credit monitoring, PR costs associated with responding to a data breach or some other incident. Do we have cyber extortion costs? That is the whole ransomware issue, covering the ransom amount that may need to be paid. Do we have liability costs? So whether that is for a data breach or security incident, or even a a privacy law violation, GDPR, California Consumer Privacy Act, violations of those and making sure coverage is broad enough to respond to alleged violations. And, And so that forms the basis of like the true cyber coverage. Then we look at the business interruption element. And so that would be four key components to business interruption as we think about it, security failure and system failure. So security failure being, as you think, somebody hacking into your network, system failure being any other unplanned outage. So you can apply that to both your your network, as well as networks of companies that you're dependent on to operate your business. So cloud providers, outsource vendors, et cetera, if they have a security failure or if they have a system failure or they're down causing you to have a revenue impact, right? Loss of profits, et cetera, that you recognize a loss to your business because they were down, you can recover that loss through your insurance policy. So we look for that. The other two key coverages that we're negotiating in, one is media liability that's always thrown in on cyber policies, covering copyright trademark issues that you may face as a result of your advertising of your company or services. And the other being that technology ENO, sort of professional liability risk for service-oriented companies. Those are the, the basics. You, from there, you can add on a whole host of new enhancements to these policies, social engineering coverage, covering computer fraud loss or funds transfer fraud, as well as things like bricking coverage. So it's a fun one to explain to clients that you look at them holding a, a computer or holding a laptop or a cell phone, and you say, like, if that became as useful as a brick, what would it cost to replace that? And then multiply that across everybody at your company, that's your bricking loss. And so those are the, the key components, I think, that we're, we're working on today. Before we wrap up here, one thing that I see in the news from time to time and with the solar winds is that some of these attacks, whether they're ransomware or, or, or network intrusions, that they're state-sponsored. 
What do you see the insurance industry handling that? It's a massive issue in the insurance community, frankly. It's something that a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about and, and, and trying to solve for. The way it's approached in cyber insurance, it's almost like a regulated thing where companies have to have a war exclusion on their policies dictated by Lloyds of London, for example, dictates it for Lloyd syndicates. And so they have to have these. What they've done is added a, a cyber terrorism carback, which is actually to say that if it was a, an attack launched by a nation state or anyone else with an idealist reasoning behind it, that the, in furtherance of whatever it may be, the policy can then respond to that company, regardless of who was the, the cause behind it or the, the actor behind it. Well, Dan, this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. Very insightful. Where can people learn more about your work? I do a lot on LinkedIn. My whole video series, short to the point videos that I put on LinkedIn, the CyberDan Insight series. Uh, and I do a little bit on Twitter as well at CyberDan Burke. So there's a, a number of places you can find me, but those two would be the, the two most relevant. Awesome. Well, Dan Burke, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. That does it for this edition of Insurance Requirements. If you haven't already, check out our website, howyouinsurethat.com, where you'll find episode archives as well as our blog, where we tackle different insurance topics from today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, pass it along to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Andrew Perrell.